Hey, if you like free stuff, you're going to like Tim's Rewards by Tim Hortons. You can earn free food or drinks after every seven purchases. Cool. How do I win? Um, it's not a contest. You just use your Tim's Rewards card, and after seven purchases, you score a free coffee, tea, or baked good. Whoa, so I've got a pretty good chance of winning. Well, actually, you've got a 100% chance of winning. Those are great odds. <laughs> They sure are. Free coffee and more with Tim's Rewards. It's Tim Hortons' way of saying thanks. Valid only at participating restaurants. Please visit restaurant or timhortons.com slash rewards for full program details. Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit. Apply within two bills of cancel early remaining amounts due. Unlimited basic after 6.30.20. Pay $32 per month per line for five lines with auto-pay data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply. soccer podcast keeping you up to date with the latest in american soccer and don't forget to subscribe on this edition of uncle sam soccer podcast we discuss the United States 2-1 victory over Jamaica to claim their sixth Gold Cup. Michael Bradley was named player of the tournament only after playing in three games. U.S. Soccer Academy Director Jared Mikulas called in to break down the structure of the Academy, providing the positives and the negatives of the Academy system in the United States. Lastly, we sat down with high school soccer coach and Region 2 Director for the Texas Association of Soccer Coaches, Fred Kaiser, to react to what Jared Mikulas had to say and why youth soccer is struggling in the United States right now. All this on this edition of Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. I am Stephen Jodderin. Across from me is my co-host, Armand Kafai. What's up, y'all? How are y'all doing today? We have an exciting show in store for you, joined by fantastic people. Great discussion. But let's get straight to it. U.S. men's national team claimed their sixth Gold Cup, one behind Mexico now. Yeah, I mean, so pretty, pretty good stuff winning the Gold st- Cup, huh? Yeah, absolutely. But the score did not reflect. I mean, do you think it was an impressive performance? Not at all. I, I thought it was like I thought it was like a normal like cup final. You know, it was a lot of nerves, a lot of like you don't want to mess up. But, well, I mean, yes and no, but cup finals have been of recent. Now, if you go to Champions League, European Championship, World Cup, they have been relatively boring. But this one was boring. Like, I mean, it, it, it was. It felt like a standstill. I mean, it was a good mix of Jamaica being very um, compact and very organized. Organized, Very absolutely. organized. Um, applauds uh, to their head coach because they were a very organized squad. Um, they did the same thing against Mexico, and that's how they beat Mexico. And uh, the USA couldn't break them down at some point until the 45th minute when they broke through with uh, Josie Alcidor's free kick. I mean, that was a hell of a free kick right there. You saw that. Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, in the first half, up until that free kick, really nothing had happened. The most exciting play was Altidore's rifle to Blake and then Kellen Acosta having the rebound and injuring Blake, his hand. Which- Andre Blake, by the way, my opinion, was the player of a tournament yes. he's kept jamaica in so many games he's a fantastic a lot, keeper. i think three shutouts oh my gosh like when i'm talking about this guy made so many saves against mexico and he, you continued it against the united states until he uh hurt his hand yeah but i mean and that was that was the turning point of the game because i don't you know if you the game went on and the the jamaican keeper came up to back up blake i mean he wasn't bad but, I mean, he wasn't Andre Blake's level. I think they needed an Andre Blake keeper to go ahead and defeat the, the mighty United States. Right, right. But what was so up until that first half, nothing had really happened. No, it was a it was a really like a like a standstill kind of. I mean, USA was dominating the game, but it wasn't they weren't getting chances to score. Right. And if you're not getting a chance to score but dominating possession, like what's the point? And mm-hmm. it was the perfect game for Jamaica because that 
can lead to them stealing the game late, and they almost did that, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, they did. So Josie Altador scores a spectacular free kick, which had a run-up of inches, which to me was like anytime I see a player do a run-up of just a couple of inches, I would say it's – Either it's going to go in or it's just going to look horrendous. I thought horrendous. he was going like to over the bar or something Me like too. That. But he – Dwayne Miller had – Dwayne Miller had no chance of, of blocking that. I don't even think Blake did. I think that was just – just He got fingertips onto it, but I think it was in the perfect position yes. to, like just to beat him, if that, if that makes any sense. But, it, you know, I don't think the U.S. deserved the goal at that point. I don't think they, they – you can obviously – they were out – they outmatched – Jamaica on the talent level, and that that showed that moment of brilliance from Altador. Yeah, but other than that, sure. organization Jamaica they, they they held their own ground. So going into halftime, you know, U.S. up was U.S. being up one nothing didn't necessarily reflect that first half. But it was an important goal. Very the United important. States. It was a very important goal. It it allows them it allowed them going to halftime with a little bit of confidence. But I mean, that confidence went away when Jamaica came back and scored. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised, to be honest, the way that the United States uh, came out in the second half because it was the exact same thing of the first half. Possession, forcing passes in the middle. Again, it was exactly what Jamaica wanted. They, they want they, they wanted that, and they wanted that that chance. And they got that chance off that off that uh, corner kick that they scored off of. And that really... Watson. Kinda, yeah, that Javon Watson, the former uh, FC Dallas player... Um, and that really, I think, gave the Jamaicans a lot more confidence. I mean, I think the performance already had given them confidence, and they already just beat Mexico. So why wouldn't they be confident? I mean, they kept US, USA at bay until the 88th minute. Yeah. And, you know, that goal was was their, I think, first shot on goal, if I remember. The I first half, I think it they was. Aver- had no shots on goal. They came out. Timmy Howard... Um, Actually, Landon Donovan finally providing some insight. <laughs> uh, was talking your boy Landon, my man. boy Landon, finally <laughs> breaking through. He uh, he was talking about how Howard for a long time used to put you know a person in the near post and the far post. Right now, nobody was covering that far post. It was a it was a huge mistake by Jordan Morris. If you yeah. watch, he just completely turned off and like, but he was he was marking him yeah. too, and he's completely turned off and you're sitting there and you're like what the hell well donovan was telling me or telling me telling you uh, yeah. telling me personally texting me no i'm just kidding but it was telling the broadcast how timmy howard made a mistake there by not putting somebody near post and far post the goalkeepers now trend not to do that which i think is so stupid just air on the side of caution what's it gonna cost by putting somebody making the goal two feet smaller and that way he could sit there and shove his body at and then who knows if Louis Suarez in 2010 handled the ball clearly he still somehow that handle of the ball was one of the most brilliant plays in World Cup history because guess who won that game Uruguay right right so that uh, when you put players on the line I know I don't think Suarez is handled off a corner kick I don't think that came off directly there, but Timmy Howard made a mistake by not putting somebody uh, on that far post. Watson scored, and that kind of flipped on the game. You saw the momentum wasn't necessarily stolen from the U.S., but it started to roll Jamaica's way, and then you started to get this feeling like, oh, Jamaica could really steal this game. There was a few shots where I thought, like, there was a few opportunities where I thought they were going to take it. Yeah. I really thought they were, and as a United States fan, you kind of got a little bit worried. Yeah. Like, and the atmosphere at the stadium wasn't necessarily the strongest either. It was no. kind of quiet. It was just kind of like to me, it represented what it was. It was a it was a United States team, a B team of the United States playing Jamaica. I feel like it's like a B plus. The U.S. Because I mean they got Bradley Altador. Okay, a B Dempsey. plus U.S. team playing Jamaica in a Gold Cup final where Jamaica is not even in the hex. So U.S. should have won, and if they had. Should have been a domination of Jamaica, I think. Yeah. Make I, a real statement. This was not a statement. This was lifting a trophy and everybody goes on about their day the next day. Yeah, like you said, um, they were more talented United States were, but 
they just weren't taking advantage of their opportunities at all, and they weren't creating opportunities. And again, I just that creativity. I feel like it's a carbon copy of the Costa Rican game a little bit. Just no, it was. It was the exact lacking. same lineup. Yeah, the the same lineup. Then Dempsey comes on in the latter in the latter stages, provides creativity, and then Morris strikes the goal. Who who worked his tail off the entire yeah, game? Yeah, shout out Jordan Morris. That was, it was an incredible. I think performance he played from really him. well. He he worked really hard. Deserved the goal. U.S. wins it. Woohoo! So. Back to where we were Sunday. What does this game mean, or what does this result mean for the U.S. going I, forward? I mean, if we're gonna be technical, if we're gonna be technical, it does mean they have one foot in for the 2000 and is it 21, 21. Confederations Cup? Yes, in, in Qatar. Oh my God! Yeah, too, in yeah, we're thinking way too too far. I'm, I'm gonna be out of college by then. But um, yeah, hopefully, two, yeah, hopefully, hopefully. But yeah, 2021. So the Gold Cup runs in two year editions for some reason. I have no idea why. I feel like. If it was a four-year edition, it'd be so much better. Like it'd add more prestige. Mean, yeah, it would. That's mean why a lot you have more. a B team playing in the uh, Gold Cup because no one cares about this Gold Cup. It's the next year's Gold Cup that's more important. If, if yeah, anything. no, absolutely. Well, not next year, the 2019 World Gold Cup. So I don't know why they do it like that, but it has. They do have one foot in the door for that for that Confederation Cup. I mean, outside of that, good job, B team. Maybe looked at some prospects for the. Uh, yeah, but. I would, I would say it doesn't answer any questions. It just opens up more questions. Yeah, what's the U.S. going to do when all those guys get old as hell? Well, not even that. What are you doing in the midfield? Because Kellen Acosta, I think the, sh- was, the stage was a little too big for him still. I think he forced again. Sometimes he got lost in that midfield. Michael Bradley played well. He forced a couple things too. Uh, Darlington Navi, you can see he definitely has that skill. Now, I would say for Michael Bradley and Kellen Acosta, it's a little bit unfair to judge them because they're used to having Pulisic sit in front of them exactly. and create all the... Yeah, the creator in that midfield, while Kellen Acosta and Michael Bradley can kind of play off of him and be more of that... Command, connector. Kind connector, of. yeah. Mm-hmm. That that transition from defense to midfield to, to right. forwards. Um, Jordan Morris, is he, do you think Bruce Arena is really going to look at him? I think he will, honestly. Um, I wish he'd look at Dom Dwyer a little bit more. Right. Uh, I like Dom Dwyer a little bit more than, than Jordan Morris, even though Jordan Morris has been part of the national team for a long time. Uh, and he's a hard worker, really, really one of the most stealthy, fast people I've ever seen. Like, you see him, he doesn't look fast at all, but he is one of the fastest people you'll, you'll see yeah. on, the, on the national team. But I don't know if he's... I don't know if he's like a, a forward that can play in, on the World Cup stage. Maybe as like a backup potentially, but I mean, I don't. I I think he will get called up for the 2018 squad, but I don't think he's at that level. I I I need to look at how many European based players are out there because I could name Yedlin, Johnson, Pulisic, Pulisic Cameron, Cameron Brooks. That's five. Uh, Timmy Chandler, Timmy Chandler, Bobby Wood, Bobby Wood. Okay, now we're at seven. Like you could, you could make an argument. All those seven players deserve to start, right? Exactly. And then what are you going to do with Kellen Costa? These borderline Nagby. Who are- so I mean, I would say this this Gold Cup was a little bit of an audition for those guys for to, for those bench spots in the 2018 World. Yeah, Cup. bench spot, sure. But I think we'll see what the MLS. You know, who knows? They, they there's still plenty of time to grow and. Right. Who knows? It could be a 17-year-old kid who's at Borussia Dortmund and nobody knows of him. He just comes out of nowhere. He comes out of nowhere. Yeah, so. exactly. Suddenly you could have, you know, a, a massive deal where you have two Christian Pulisics. Then we – if we had two Christian Pulisics, I would be like – Are we trying to duplicate one of them or like – We should clone him. That's a – Get I'll, his skill. I would do it. Clone his DNA. I don't know. But <laughs> in all sincerity, we, the United States needs more of that. More well, than anything. Obviously, more creativity. I mean, you have two, three, I want to say three creative players. Well, on the on the Gold Cup roster, at least. Well, no, I'm just talking in general. Pulisic, I think, is one the of the U.S. roster. Most, yeah, Pulisic is one of the more, most creative players. Then, we, then Dempsey. And then I would say Nagby. Yeah, but okay, Dempsey old. He's not. He can't do it for ninety minutes. So I already scratch him. Right. So then you have Nagby Pulisic, right? Yeah. So if Nagby is really create the creator, then shouldn't we have seen more of that in this Gold Cup? Yeah, I feel like that. But I mean, this is. I, I don't know. Bruce Arena was tinkering around the lineup a lot. He but, did. He did putting and the, different starters and whatnot. Yeah. Like, well, 
Thanks, man. I, I think a huge question not talked about is what are we going to do with 38-year-old Tim Howard? He's going to be Howard. Well, I mean, at this rate, let's be honest here. You he, might as well start. He's going to start in the World Cup. I'm going to be honest. I, that's that's the path that we're head, heading towards. It won't be it won't be I mean, we need to go past that. We have so many great young goalkeepers coming up. I think we need to go past that Tim Howard, but he's probably going to be starting in the World Cup, let's be honest here. And I don't like that from a USA standpoint, to be honest. No, absolutely. And we, we're going to have more thoughts coming up uh, in future episodes. Oh, yeah, for especially sure. Especially with the World Cup qualifiers in, uh, on September 1st. But up next, we're going to be joined by Jared Nicholas of the U.S. Soccer Academy. Yeah, this one's a cool one right here. Yeah, definitely some great insight. Joining us right now is U.S. Soccer Development Academy Director Jared Miklas. In 2014, he took uh, responsibility for the strategic vision of the academy and establishing program initiatives. He also oversees the program's administrative and business operations. And lastly, he implements all aspects of the program. Thank you so much for joining us here on Uncle Sam Soccer Podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for the invite, gentlemen. So uh, the academy system is... Well, relatively known in the soccer community, but as far as it comes into detail, it's it's still very uh, thin. Uh, do you mind elaborating on the structure of the academy system and how important it is to the development of the game here in the United States? Absolutely. The Development Academy was started in 2007, so we just finished our 10th year uh, here in the month of July, and we still do agree that we see it in its infancy stages in terms of the potential that the program has overall. It was first structured in 2007 with two combined age groups, U15-16 and U17-18. That was to focus on a group of players that was manageable at the time. And as the academy has grown, both in its number of years and in the, in the scope, the goal has been to increase the influence of the player development initiatives that exist within the academy and kind of the standards that exist that are based around player development. And over time, our goal has been to take it from the older age groups and drive that younger and ultimately drive it into zone one, which is what we call U12 and younger. So for the first time this past year, the academy had U12 programming in it, and now it has a pathway that has gone from U18 all the way to U12. And this coming year, we'll have six age groups. And that's been a long-term evolution of combined age groups to single age groups. So we'll start with U12 and have single age groups at U13, U14, and 15 as well. And then we'll have two combined age groups at U17 and U19. So how many youth are part of this program? This past year, we had just under 11,000 players that registered on the boys' side of the academy. We'll add one uh, age group this year, so we'll see a slight influx in the number of boys. So we'll expect that number to be between 11 and 12,000 by the time the year is over. And we're launching a girls' development academy across four age groups. So we'll see an additional 5,600 to 6,000 players that will register there. So when you look at the academy program overall, and we see it as, as one program based on our player development initiatives and our standards, that program will have between 17,000 and 18,000 players this year. Hey, Jared. Armand here. So what is the overall purpose of the academy system in the United States? The Academy is a program that's run by the Federation. We have Academy clubs that have applied and been accepted to be in the program. These clubs have a goal and an aspiration to develop players in their home markets. The program is the structure that allows them to do so and the competition platform for them. And really, uh, our Federation initiative is to help drive this, this player development initiative forward. And the clubs in their everyday environment are actually developing the players. They're the ones that are spending four or five, six days a week training the players and playing games on the weekend as part of our structure. But it, our goal is to provide them that framework and to support the clubs and impact the clubs, their everyday environment, so that they can develop world-class players. Now, you said it's, it's in partnership with the Federation. Now, is the Academy supposed to develop players for the national team or is it just to develop players in general 
So every player has its own has his own or her own pathway. So I think there's no one and only specific goal. But if we talk about our, our mission, which is developing a world-class player, that world-class player is going to play for their respective national team, um, you know, wherever that might be around the world. So in our case, yes, it is ultimately for the player that reaches the pinnacle to play for our senior national teams. And as part of the academy program, you have players that are playing for the youth national teams. Currently, when you look at an, uh, a cycle of players in our youth national team from you know, a, a year, we have currently 90% of players on our youth national team rosters that are members of academy clubs. So what we're seeing is that players are being driven to academy clubs based on the standards and the level. These clubs are doing a great job of, of developing the players. We're supplementing it with our youth national team program and our training center program, which is a talent identification program as well. And the goal is to drive these players together into one environment where they're playing with and against the best players, coached by the best players, and that's really helping them grow. So whatever the end goal is for that player, whether it you know, be, be that they stop at the academy or they play um, you know, post that, either professionally or collegiately or eventually internationally, that, that's dependent on every player. But ultimately, the end goal would be a player that's come through the system that plays for the national team like we have you know, so many that we'll do tonight in our game um, in the Gold Cup. Right. And, but is there, from the academy side, is there a emphasis on saying, hey, we, since you are in the United States, we'd like for you to play for the United States because there is coming funding coming from the Federation. I mean, there's a lot of criticism on that, or uh, well, not criticism, but just on clarity on, you know, okay, are we developing players for the national team? Or are we developing players just for world class, you know, on that premise? I think that goes back to, to the earlier point that we, we provide the platform that allows the, the player to develop, but ultimately the player and the club in their everyday environment are, are determining what that is. So if you have a, a professional club that has a player in their academy, their ideal goal is probably to develop that player to play for their professional team. Um, that would be a, a, a normal pathway for any player around the world in a, in a youth academy system that's connected to a pro team. So when, if you're talking about you know players in, in different countries, and obviously – um, you know, with it being a, a domestic-based program, a large majority of the players in the program are, are obviously going to be eligible for the U.S. team. It gets into a much larger discussion if you're talking about um, what factors that, that might exist for a player that's able to play internationally, and, and that just depends on the player's heritage and, and residency and et cetera. But there's a lot of FIFA uh, and ITC rules that dictate where players can play determining, uh, you know, based on their nationality. So, Jared, currently, in your opinion, what are the biggest issues facing youth soccer right now? We, you know, we look at the, the landscape overall. You know, you're talking about over 4 million players that, you know, exist in this country. And that, that number might be, be larger than that, but 4 million plus from, from registered players from, from what we know at this point. You, you know, that's a, that's a different challenge than maybe the 20,000 players that will play in the academy this year. There might be some that exists when you look at geography and travel and the size and scope of the country, um, that, that obviously becomes one challenge. Um, having the, the sport and the program exist over a long period of time that, that exists in other countries, that has a real benefit because you have coaches and players that have played uh, the sport their whole life growing up. So right now we, I think we're, we're faced with this challenge across the entire landscape of developing better coaches. We think better coaches will develop better players. So it's a major initiative of the Federation to uh, continue to enhance our licensing program and create more opportunities. So when you look at something on the scope that we are and, and the amount of years that people have, have been you know, really investing um, from a financial standpoint in the youth game, it's not uh, you know, something that's, that's on the forefront of development like it is in other areas of the world. So I think we've got a couple factors uh, logistically that, that make it difficult. Uh, and then you have a lot of opportunity in this country. There's a lot of sports. There's a lot of um, choices for, for children when they're growing up. So that's another dynamic of, of how many players you actually have playing the sport as well. So let's narrow it down a little bit. What about academy-wise? What are the issues going on in the, on the academy level? 
I think right now we're looking at trying to uh, improve the overall level. The, the, the more we can bring up uh, the entire group, the better players that we have playing with, with better players, then that's probably going to be as fast as the system rises. Right now, we have a real challenge with um, you know, players being able to be in an everyday environment that's professionalized and the challenges that exist either with school and travel and, and, and distance that some have, you know, depending on where someone lives. But if you really want to look at what's going to develop a player, it's that consistent everyday environment where you've got everyday training and facilities that allow that to happen, that fit within a, a player's schedule that doesn't have long travel distances, both for travel and for, I mean, sorry, both for training and for games. So that becomes a real logistic. Uh, I think staffing uh, of clubs, you know, it's not like there's a full-time athletic trainer and a full-time sports psychologist and a right. And, you know, all the support staff that goes along with it, that really helps a, a player develop on and off the field. So looking at what a professional environment looks like, it's, it's lacking in terms of, of facilities and staffing and support in those levels. And then just the quality overall of, of the, the amount of coaches of where we're at and, and the amount of coaches that we'd like all the players to be able to have, head coaches and assistant coaches that have, you know, gone through the licensing pathway and that have experience coaching that can provide uh, education and instruction to these players, that's still, you know, that's still developing. And I think it's at a level where we could increase it and improve it over time. Do you feel personally that you take a lot of responsibility for the development of the youth? I think we as a federation certainly have a, a, a you know, a large part in, in what's happening. We're, we're trying to drive standards that we believe are based on best practices around the world for players to develop. So when you say personally in, in terms of the program and our staff and everyone that has invested so much time and energy into this, we, yeah, we, we do take it personally that this is a, a goal and initiative of the Federation of what we do every day. So we think that we can, again, provide that platform that's going to allow it to, to improve and to see if we can improve it at the fastest rate that we can and accelerate that, that timeline. How has the academy system changed since you've taken over? Uh, it's been three years since I've been in the role as the director. I started off as a coach in the academy in the first um, two years of the program. So it's been great to have the perspective of the academy and to watch it evolve over time. I think every year it gets better. Every year we have a, a number of people that are looking at it from an analysis standpoint, whether that be through our technical group, our technical advisors that are supporting the clubs and actually watching games week in, week out, our scouting network, our youth national team coaches that are directly tied into the program, our director of talent identification. You know, there's a number of people that are, are watching these games and what we're doing and, and what's happened uh, even more so in the last three years is we're trying to take all of this analysis, the data that we get from, you know, from video review uh, and et cetera to determine what it is that we need to prioritize as next steps. So in the last three years, I think, You've seen a, a couple new initiatives, which has been to drive into Zone 1, so the, the establishment of a U-12 program. We also split the U-13 and 14 age groups to be single age because we felt that the, the development and maturation of uh, youth male players during that you know, 12 to 14 range was very wide-ranging. So we wanted to, to help you know, combat relative age effect uh, and help bring an awareness to the fact that players are developing at different times at different ages. So having 12, 13, and 14, and now adding this year 15 single age, it's another big change. So the program's grown from 5,000 to, to 11,000 players in the last three years. And then most recently, the, the launch of a girls academy based on 10 years of experience on the boys' side, We've, we believe it's the right time. And... Um, you know, we have the, the expertise and the knowledge. We're hiring staff uh, specifically on the girls' side to launch this program. So in the last three years, you've seen, you know, a program in terms of uh, numbers almost triple and the initiatives that we've done in, in terms of supporting it and all the other aspects of, of analysis that I talked about that are, are really continuing to, to improve and increase, which has it's given us greater insight into what we do next and, and how we, we structure the program to make it better every year. Absolutely. But an issue of the academy program has been at least talked about in the media, especially by Tara Twelman, is the pay-to-play system. How is the academy addressing that pay-to-play uh, issue that's been going on recently? That's a great question and one that I didn't mention as a, as a restraint uh, earlier. And I think that depending on um, the club and the location, obviously the individual is playing, that, that that is another challenge. It's something that 
making it cost free is it's not going to change next year or the year after that but having an awareness to the fact that uh financially uh that can be a barrier for players to pay uh players to play so reducing that is extremely important to us we supplement academy uh investment with a scholarship program that's available to any player that's part of the academy they can apply for it at the beginning of the year and we send that money to help uh supplement clubs with their you know cost of travel and, and, and training so that's a, a program that we've invested over four hundred thousand dollars in and you know year after year we'll continue to do that we'll look to increase it through some gifts that we're receiving we're actively um, fundraising for money for scholarships that we can you know turn around and, and put right back into players in addition to that we've encouraged clubs to bring down the cost for for players within their club and specifically with these academy players who have to travel so we've seen uh, a you know an increased effort by clubs we have over 20 clubs that are cost free uh, for the full pathway of, uh, out of the 73 clubs that we had this past year so that's obviously a start the professional clubs are driving this in terms of not only their funding for this but the additional resources they're offering some of them with school-based programs or residencies so that, that's been a real positive positive. and when we looked at the average cost of a player over the last year um, every single division had uh, made some improvement on the average cost per player from the year prior and I think the average um, you know was over five hundred dollars in terms of the reduction in cost per player across across the division so we're, we're seeing clubs have an awareness to it and make efforts to improve it awesome finally here where, where do you see the Academy going in the next 10 years under your uh, direction It's a good question and one that we're talking about every day and you know sometimes you can see a month ahead and, and you try to look 10 years ahead because you, you want to be able to, to plan for that. I think it's hard to say exactly where it's going to be. Um, we've got an incredible team of committed people here that I get to work with every day, not only in the academy but, but outside of it in our, all of our sport development units. So what we've seen is a, is a real commitment from you know, different groups that support the academy from youth national teams, from high performance, from talent ID, um, coaching education referees. We look at it as one single focus of sport development, of developing players, coaches, and referees. And where I see it going is, is more of an integration between these departments, the academy setting uh, the standard and the model, uh, similar to, to things like player development initiatives for Zone 1, that we're setting that standard for, for Zone 2 for players that are between 12 and, and 19 years of age. And hopefully that this becomes a model that's good for, for all players that are on a pathway to, to continue to develop in Zone 2, and that this academy model can be uh, replicated in, in other leagues and other programs around the country and uh, you know through different member organizations to, to have a pathway for every player who aspires to develop for them to be able to do that on whatever level that is. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jared. I know you're a busy guy and I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out of the day to join us on the podcast today. You're welcome guys. Thanks for your attention to the, to the youth program and good luck with the podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Up next in the pod, we got Fred Kaiser to join us on the show. today is Fred Kaiser. Fred has been the head soccer coach at Frisco Liberty High School for 11 years and is currently the Region 2 Director of the Texas Association of Soccer Coaches. Fred, how are you today, man? Doing well, thank you. How are you gentlemen doing? Doing good, doing good. good. Well, we got to clear up. Uh, coach over here did uh, was my economics teacher in high school as well as my coach freshman year. Yeah, so. he was my coach too. But like, So it's not like we're talking to a complete stranger. We, I mean, we, we kind we've of known are. him. Kind you remember us. I do remember you. <laughs> <laughs> For good or bad. <laughs> but, um, no, he just listened to the interview with uh, the U.S. Development Academy, Jared Mikolas. Yep. And uh, let's, let's go straight to it. I mean, what what'd you th- What are your thoughts? Your initial thoughts on the initial whole thoughts. interview? I was impressed. Um, he, he did a, fan, a fantastic job of explaining the structure, explaining the development, what's changed over the last several years. I'd love to hear more what they're looking at going forward, um, but uh, I mean o- overall, he's obviously an impressive person, and uh, I was happy with the interview. It was interesting to find out some of that information. What did you think about uh, the? 
I mean, we talked to you before we did the interview to get some more background information as far as the academy system and, and the gripes of it, of being a, a father, a, a high school coach, uh, you know, having gone through and seeing all this, all the development of academy in the last 10 years, because that's that's when he said it, it's really starting to pick up only in the last couple of years, but it's been 10 years since they, they've initially started this academy program. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pay well, the pay yeah. to play I that's think. Uh, that's a big thing for me and it's i have been in at liberty and we were affected by it when they first started the academy program and the development program um and the changes they've made in the last three or four years specifically i thought really improved it and improved a lot of people's opinions of it overall when they first started the program um a lot of the developmental players weren't getting weren't being tapped to play so they they got tapped as a dp um which means they weren't allowed to play high school and, and i'll talk about that i guess in a second um, but those who were tapped uh, as a DP weren't allowed to play high school, but then they're not getting to showcase their talent in any way, shape, or form in academy games. And you had teams with rosters of 60, 70 kids where you only had your 15, 16, 17 players that were getting on the field. And in the meantime, those players are being left out. Um, when they initially started the academy, it wasn't mandatory um, for players to sit out high school. Um, it was up to individual clubs on who a school wanted to in Frisco that. won that right like they won the state title with uh, multiple academy members oh uh, right? yeah yes um yeah Wakeland won uh, with uh, the Dallas Texans um I believe they had 10 of their national championship players um on that team and you said four of them were actually on the bench yes um they, they were stacked um they, they had a couple players that were solar Chelsea a couple FC Dallas and things like that but yeah some of those players who were good enough to play for the Texans national championship team weren't good enough to start um, over a couple of the other players. Um, it's not that they weren't good. It's just that's how stacked the, the area was, and they were a fantastic team, um, well-coached. They did, they did a fantastic job. Um, so it was up to the individual clubs there, so you didn't have any standardization of, hey, some of the Texans could play, but FC Dallas couldn't, for instance. Right. Um, and I do understand why FC Dallas did that, because FC Dallas was one of the very few clubs, mentioned earlier, pay-to-play, that foots the bill for all their academy right. players. Right, right. Um, so a, a club like FC Dallas, when they did that, they're showing commitment to the players. Um, in my view, same level that the players showing to the uh, to the club. That's that's always been my big issue. Um, biggest issue, I should say, is not that they can't play for us. I mean, we'd love to have those players, but it's not that big of a deal. But if a player is showing that level of commitment to a club, I believe that the club should show that commitment back in terms of, hey, we're going to cover your cost of travel. You're not going to have to pay your fees, things like that. SC Dallas from the get-go has done that. Um, and so, you know, it makes it really easy to support there. We do need to have a restructuring, or we did, um, and, and they're in the process of doing that. Just the development of our players appears to be behind the rest of the world. So um, the United States did need a restructuring, um, and it's gone through its growing pains, but um, they're doing a lot. I believe that the academy structure is doing a lot better job overall um, of, you know, now a developmental player that, you know, a team's not allowed to roster 70 of them. A developmental player has to have a certain percentage of playing time. Um, so that way, you know, if they are, again, they're making the commitment to the club, right, right. then they are going to get showcased as opposed to just get tapped. So that lets, you know, one club can just say, hey, this kid's going to be an academy kid just so they don't have to play against them or just so that, you know, they can do what they want with it. So um, going forward, I'd really like to see something of, you know, the pay-to-play go away, at least right. at the academy level. Um, where uh, the the clubs you know the, the club is supporting the player and showing them you know showing them the same level of commitment that the players um, showing to the club by because it's a lot of money opportunities absolutely it is when you take into the travel especially I mean if you North Texas has three teams and that might be going down but you know they have to travel down to a, a San Antonio or up to Colorado or to Seattle in order to play uh, academy games those, those costs can add up for a family um, and so you know it's 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 a lot to give up and it's a lot of commitment um then you but you do have your clubs that are are footing the bill for those players um that's fantastic it also would it also helps um again use fc dallas you know they opened up their el paso branch so they are um able to to feed into a demographic that may not be able to afford um you know flying to dallas or moving to dallas in order to play for their programs and things like that um where they're able, to, they're able to locate that talent. I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see a bigger expansion of that. Obviously, your MLS clubs have a little bit better ability of doing that. Um, but just an expansion of that where, you know, if if you're going to ask for 10 months of a commitment from a player um, and things like that, 
and what they're giving up, then you're showing commitment back in terms of paying for it. So, I mean, Armand, feel free to comment, but you just said developing U.S. soccer players. Now, Jared went on what I feel gave kind of a... a it was kind of a mixed response. Yeah, I mean, I feel like at some point he was like, yeah, USA, and then at some point he wasn't. And well, if you, what are your you, thoughts on that? If you check their mission, um, it doesn't say anything specific about American development. Right, right. right. Um, so if they're looking just to develop, you know, that's fine. And he, they do give a lot of autonomy to the clubs. Um, so you know, it's they have their application process in order to become an academy club um, or academy team. Um, but they do have a lot of autonomy with the clubs, and as he pointed out, the MLS teams use it as a farm system for their players. Um, you know, when the academy was introduced to us a decade ago, it, uh, the understanding that a lot of coaches had, I, I, me specifically, but I and talking to a lot of other coaches, was this is what we're going to be using to develop American players so that we can compete. I mean, that would, I think, be like the automatic assumption because when the U.S. soccer is funding it, I mean, that's what – I mean, that's what I would assume if U.S. Soccer was funding a uh, program like that. So, uh, but I mean, they they have a broader mission. It appears where they're just trying to have good soccer and good development in the United States, I regardless w- of citizenship or wonder if he, ability to play for the U.S. national team. That's it, fine too. Yeah, if he gave gave the answer just so he wouldn't have people up his butt on the sense that oh, you're developing just America, America, but in, in, the, in the political climate that we that are. That sounds kind of wrong if you're saying, oh, you're developing American, America. I mean, at least in like a PR perspective. Yeah, yeah. and I think he gave the safe answer, like, no, well, well, we, we hope they play for the national team, the U.S. national team, but, you know, we give respects to the individual and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, it's also the answer he gave is in line with what their mission statement was. Right. And it's not specific to U.S. Um, to U.S. national team. It's just soccer in the united states in general so i'm i I could support him on that one but uh i i really i mean we should be focusing on our players i don't i don't really think like a a, and talked about this before but like a a Bayern munich or dortmund or chivas or something like that if they're developing players and then that player goes off and plays for another country i'm not sure how happy those clubs are um about that um we have benefited um as well green green uh Um, but uh, I mean we're we're benefiting from it as well. So and it's it's good to have our players de- being developed in foreign countries too that are, are a bit more um, structured and have a bit more infrastructure in place um, and time and tradition and ability. Um, so you know sending our players to foreign countries or the parents or how it works <laughs> out to to have. Uh, to, to get uh, that uh, opportunity, and that's good too. I mean, uh, Heidman's another great example of yeah. that. Um, so I believe he was 15 when he went to England. Right. Um, he's still over there now playing. Um, so, um, but uh, that's, you know, you have that opportunity, and that's a good opportunity to take why, advantage of. Why hasn't the U.S. developed? I mean, Christian Pulisic is, uh, to me, already the GOAT, the greatest American player. I think he. His creativity and his presence on the field is unlike any what you've seen. Yeah, from we any talked other about American. that in the, in the Costa Rican game. Like we saw without Pulisic, there was a gap in creativity unle- until Dempsey came on. So I think he is probably the most creative out right, there. Right, but is does that stem from just a cultural of not playing soccer from the age of one, or is that a coaching problem? Where does the root of the issue come to these Americans? Because, yeah, Josie Altador, he's technically gifted, he's tall, he's fast, strong. he's physical, he's strong, all this, but you still like, where is that creativity where you see from the streets of, you know, Brazil, Spain, Mexico, these, this creativity, where, where do you think that... I think it's one of, one of the, it's going to sound negative, but it's not meant to be, it's one of the, one of the pitfalls of being in the United States where we have so many opportunities to do so many different things. Um, if you look at a lot of those countries where soccer is the big thing, um, they don't have the infrastructure. In pl- they're not playing basketball. They're right. not playing football. They're not playing hockey. Um, now, some of your countries are. I mean, your European countries, if you're six foot nine or you're Dirk Nowinski or something like that, <laughs> then, you know, you're, you're probably playing basketball. That is an opportunity. And you're, you are seeing the growth of, of basketball across the entire globe. 
But the United States, we have so many opportunities for, so, for many of our fantastic athletes to have other opportunities and, honestly, higher-paying opportunities. I mean, sure, this is an economics yeah, teacher absolutely. in me right. pointing this out. But if, if I'm a fantastic – Jay Ajay, who graduated from Liberty, is a perfect example of this. If he could have gone pro in the United States in soccer or gone pro in football – you're picking football. You're picking football. Oh, for sure. With all that um, which, yeah. which he did. I mean, his, his contract there is going to be much larger than what it was for an MLS team. Um, now, on, on the global stage, once you start bringing in your Bundesliga, you start looking at EPL, you start looking at La Liga and things like that, well, those massive contracts uh, in Russia as well, those massive contracts are larger than N- NFL contracts, larger than NBA contracts, um, but you still have things like Major League Baseball, um, those are massive contracts as well. <laughs> All guaranteed. A- NBA now, uh, NBA guaranteed contracts money. are going God, through the NBA. roof. So if, you, if I can make $25 million a year doing that, is there – you guys may know this better than me. Is there an individual MLS player that's earning $25 million a year in a contract? Oh, absolutely nope. not. You can not you could close. put a list of four players and you'd probably just get to 25 And that would be the four highest paid players. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean – People respond to incentives. Um, money is a very big incentive. So if I, you know, if I see a LeBron James, you know, I see a Steph Curry, um, I see what they're doing. I see, you know, LeBron James is probably close to being a billionaire now um, with all of his, uh, with all of his endorsement deals and all yeah. that. That's what I see as an American. Well, you know, it's there's a bit more sex appeal to doing that, and there's there's a bit more financial incentive to do it. Um, so. We have a lot of different avenues where you can be a fantastic athlete, and it's not just soccer, unlike a lot of the other countries where, like you said, culturally, from birth, we're playing soccer from the time we're born. That's what we see. It's part of our cultural identity. Look at Argentina. Look at Brazil. Um, look at uh, look at Mexico, um, and this is just in Central South America here, or I guess North and South America there. <laughs> um, but uh, so- soccer is a sport, um, so – as you know, as baseball expands, as football expands, I mean, football's looking at China. Football plays games in England. Football, play, NFL plays games in Mexico City now, trying yeah. to trying to expand it. It's still not soccer, but I mean, they're doing what they can. You, you've seen the explosion of basketball since the first Dream Team with Magic and Michael and Larry Bird and John Stockton. Yeah, sure. um, that was a birth. I mean, that was really a, a rebirth of basketball throughout the entire world and. Now the United States actually has to field a really, really good team in order to compete. Otherwise, the Spanish are going to bury us. The Argentinians might beat us. Um, things like that. With you know, with that expansion there, um, it might be taking up a little bit more of the soccer market. But I mean, nobody's going to confuse Mexico for being an NFL country. Oh no it, way! It, it's soccer through and yeah. through. Um, so we're competing with that. You know, where it's where soccer is embedded in the culture of a lot of these countries. We're doing a good job. I mean, soccer, as it has been for the last several decades, is by far the the most participated in sport uh, for for kids, for youth. Um, But what we start seeing is at 10, 11, 12, once more opportunities open up, um, then players are going to different sports too. Um, Good and bad, but, uh, I mean, we'd really like to keep some of our top athletes. I mean, imagine – I mean, the pipe dream, but like a LeBron James or a Terrell Owens or a Des Bryant. <laughs> Imagine those guys on the field. Oh on the God. soccer field. I mean, with their kind of Steph Curry, with, you know, a LeBron James, he's, he's a monster. And but imagine those players right, but you're talking playing about for the United States. Physical attribute. I'm, my question is football, you, there's not a lot of creativity. Yeah, as a quarterback, you need to know where the plays are going. As a running back, you need to know what hole to go through. Fair enough. As far as creativity, the only sport, I think, two sports I really compare is hockey and basketball where you have multiple people. Well, the coaches have less impact during a game in those sports. Sure. Um, I can't call a timeout when I'm coaching. No, right. no, um, I'm not calling the plays into my quarterback or to my defensive backs. You know, um, If all of a sudden the other team is just starting to route us, I, I can't call that now in college. You can. They have timeouts. But um, I'm not calling a timeout in order to you know stem the tide. Um, soccer players have to be more creative. Soccer players, honestly, have to be more intelligent because they are the ones who have to make those decisions. The only time that a coach really impacts a game – well, is before when you're preparing for it, potentially half-time. at halftime, right. and then when Full you make days. when you make a substitution. Oh yeah, so I mean yeah. that, that's the bottom line. That's the only real way a coach is going to impact actual um, actual in game decision making processes. There, so the players have to be more creative. The players have to be more intelligent um, because they can't rely on much on somebody else doing that. Um, so, in terms of creativity, specifically to the United States. 
Uh, getting back to our, your original question, I don't know. Um, I thought it was interesting to note um, in your interview with, with the academy director, it's, you know, we don't have the number of coaches or, or high-quality coaches or high-level coaches that we want. Yeah, I want to talk about coaching, like, about but that. But what, what, yeah, I was say, what makes a high-quality coach if it's, is it just the, the, the license the license that separates these and, and these people's I mean, eyes? In, in a lot of people's eyes, yeah, I mean, the, the licensing is important. Um, and, and the licensing is important because it says, hey, you've met a – You've met a criteria. You've shown mastery in this, especially right. when you're getting your A licenses and then like your advanced nationals and premier diplomas uh, for NSCAA, who also does a fantastic job um, of of training coaches. Um, so yes and no, but uh, it, it's really co- honestly through USSF, it's cost prohibitive for a lot of us to to go through the licensing program. Um, you were talking about the cost; they're like crazy. It's uh, it, it's high. Um, and I, that serves two functions, I think. One, it actually pays for what you're doing, uh, but it also keeps it also keeps folks out who don't potentially right. want to make that. I mean, it does show it shows a big commitment, um, right? In the way they've restructured the licenses for USSF, it's a big time commitment as well. Um, but it's also why a lot more folks are going through NSCAA um, because their licensing structure isn't as cost prohibitive. Um, it seems to be a bit more open, um, and it's it's you know. Even though we have a coaching shortage um, o- overall for the amount of players that we have and for what the developmental academy would like to do, at the same time, it's exceedingly restrictive to get your B and get your A licenses now. Um, I know several people who are highly qualified who couldn't get, who didn't get their or who weren't accepted in, to get their A license um, because they're not specifically with an academy program. So. Um, now, as time passes and as the restructuring is, has taken its course, it'll open up more of those coaches. But I, I think, I mean, I, I know USSF has partnered with um, NSCAA for the C licenses and below. But um, as time goes on, potentially, um, you know, that's one of those things where uh, they could combine more with uh, NSCAA and use the resources. NSCAA is the largest coaching organization in the world use the resources and the structures that are in place there to stop the bottlenecks uh, right now of, of your people, of your folks trying to go through the licensing structure and go through and get their B and their A. Um, it's a potential resource. And I, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about on that, but I would wager to, right. guess, I'd wager to guess that they've had those discussions. And I know they have because NSCAA is, like I said, doing season below now um, in partnership with USSF. So, um, they're growing. They're figuring out. Um, they're figuring out their bottlenecks. They're figuring out, you know, um, the the problems that they have, and, and they're addressing them. And it it'll take time. And you know, personally, as a coach and someone who wants to go through and get more licenses and things like that, for me personally, it's a little bit frustrating. But it's one of those things. Live with it. Um, mm-hmm. As they figure it out, they're in uncharted territory. They're trying to figure out the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right, there. Right. And, and it looks like you know they're making really good strides and trying to and trying to fix those things. But everything came to a pretty big bottleneck when they started restructuring with the A licenses um, specifically, and they kind of had to put things on hold there for for those people. But I mean, if you have a coaching shortage, it makes sense to reach out and educate more, more coaches. coaches. One of those things would be maybe not making it so cost prohibitive um, or yeah. opening it up. Pulling down that cost. Um, but, you know, again, that's the economics teacher in me. I mean, it kind of seems like there's a little pay to play for coaching a little bit, if that makes any sense. Pay to, pay pay to, to coach, coach, right? Like start a new trend there. I mean, well, I mean, they talked about the scholarship program they had in place for USSF. I know NSCAA does that as well through their foundation. Um, but that's... Uh, uh, kind of at those higher levels i don't know how many scholarships they offer there but again if, if the problem is we don't have enough coaches then it seems you'd kind of kind of productive to not t- to keep it, it that high but at the same time i don't know what their cost structure looks like in terms of how much it's actually costing them to train those coaches when they redeveloped the a license there's a lot of video analysis that goes in there so they have to pay people to have a look at that kind of stuff so do you think they might be addressing all these problems internally it might just be this is where we're currently at and hopefully down the road you know as we have the structure in place, the, the the cost goes down. But right now, it's it's pretty difficult. Do you think I'm, I'm not trying to you know uh, I don't know how to describe it, but don't take this in the wrong way. But we, if we're having this shortage of coaching, as Jared mentioned, do you why why is that even that important? If we don't even as a culture accept soccer as one of the main sports, are these coaches always are? You, uh, is there that big of an impact of a coach on a player if 
you know, at the youth development more yeah. so. And I'll be honest, by the time players get to me, and like with the MPSL team, um, but by the time the players get to me, if they haven't already had a solid foundation of basic skills, there's not much I can do by the time they hit high school. Yeah. Um, I can continue to train with them and work and improve them, but they'll never be top-level players either. Um, it does start young. Um, so I'd say I'd say the youth coaching, and it's, it's probably – and he, um, it, it, they said they said USSF is expanding down to the U12 level as well. Okay. Well, I mean, the youth coaching is really – that's going to be the important time um, when you're doing that. One thing I'd be interested in seeing um, – Especially with the as they drop the ages down for the academy, where they're going U twelve, U thirteen, U fourteen, um, are how many more soccer specific injuries are going to be getting? Um, that's something that you see a lot now um, when player. I mean, players or kids are starting to specialize at a younger, younger age, and they're getting overuse injuries because the days of hey, I'll play football during this season, soccer during this season, then baseball during that season. Now you're starting to see younger pl- or players at a younger and younger age getting uh, yeah. sport specific injuries oh, because right, right. of overuses there i'm sure ussf is modifying that schedule where they're not there where they don't have the u12 players doing the same thing as the u18s u19s that'd be hopefully not um, yeah that'd be terrible if they... but um i mean coaching at the young at, at the at the younger age um in turn in in development is sure. exceedingly important it's still important as you get older because as the, the younger players are working more of the technical aspects than the tactical aspects and as they get older you're starting to see more and more ta- uh, tactical aspects you know of you know these are the responsibilities of the defender your pressure cover balance stuff like that but that stuff isn't really all that important if the player can't pass a ball right they, they exactly. can't yeah. they can't no, receive a sure. flighted ball um things like that so i mean just working the technique um at those younger ages and, and i know ussf and uh, nsca are both doing that where it's you know they're really trying to focus on on technique 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 until um, you know they're reaching 10, 11, 12, 13 years, and then they go more into the tactical side of it. So um, your technical coaches, I'd say, are more important at the younger levels and then your tactical coaching at the upper levels. Um, but in terms of fixing the creativity issue, um, a lot of that uh, I, I, I just don't know the answer to. You that. Don't, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a tough I think it's a more individual thing like for creativity. Like, like you said, like, I think it's more of a cultural thing, like the creativity and whatnot. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can really teach I think creativity just comes at, at, at a certain point. If that makes any sense. Yes and no. I mean, uh, to, to a certain extent, yes and no. Yeah. I mean, you're gonna have you're gonna have your your just your flat out natural ability, right? Um, but in order to master something, it's your ten thousand hour rule. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the more you're doing it, and the more you're practicing, the more deliberate practicing you're doing. I mean, ten thousand hours of stupid practice is a waste of time. But ten thousand hours of deliberate practice, where you're doing several things and becoming a master of it. Once you're, you know, you're comfortable in your basic techniques and then branching out into the creativity, um, I, I think you can teach some creativity, um, but you're also going to have your natural players that are just naturally more creative and better than everyone else. No, it's, 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 it's a, a sticky situation for the U.S. Academy because they have, they're pouring in a lot of money from the Federation, and technically some of these players are eligible to go play for Mexico, for mm-hmm. France if they wanted to. For anywhere, basically. Practically anywhere where FIFA sanctions them to go. As, as, and as he said, you know, it's FIFA's decision on who can play where, so I mean, that's not really USSF's Right. I, I just don't understand why there's no emphasis. Like, well, you know what? We're going to give you the scholarship, but we are going to make sure first we'll go to FIFA do you have the right background to play? I mean, as bad as that sounds, but if, if you're going to the FC at Dallas Academy system, you're going to, who cares? That's that FC Dallas is flipping the bill. Then they're not going to get money from the Federation. But if the Federation is supporting a uh, an academy in Houston, for example, not outside the Houston Dynamo, it should be geared to f- developing players for the national team. Especially when we are behind the other countries, and we're not just behind the other countries; we are still miles behind these other nations. Mm-hmm. And it does say something at the same time, though, that you know some of these players are coming here and being developed. If they're good, I mean, they are good enough to be playing for a foreign national team, and they were developed here in the United States. That is, I mean, if you look at that from a USSF standpoint, that does bring credibility to the, the way the USSF is doing things right. and, and the way the academy system. Hey, it's actually working when. 
hey, we have a guy that's playing for Honduras or we're, that's playing for Mexico or something like that, and they were developed in the United States. It does give the United States a bit more credibility when it comes to that. Um, I honestly don't know the finances of USSF and in terms of how much money they're putting um, in different places, how much they're supporting those Well, they have a $100 million dollar surplus. I mean, right. yeah, they do have this huge surplus that, But you know. what, what are they doing? You know, I, I don't know what they're doing with that money, though, either. I don't know. No, you know, yeah. If, no, if, yeah, they, if know. they are putting it, like you said, if FC Dallas is putting the entire bill without help from USSF, then, hey, use it as a farm system. But if USSF is putting the bill for... A Houston Academy. I, I don't know why we keep picking on Houston, but um, <laughs> everyone hates Houston, so I mean, that, that's fine. fine. But uh, but if they are footing the bill, then maybe there are conditions. But uh, for me, it goes back specifically to what the state admission was for USSF. Had their state admission been what we are going to do with the academy system is to develop players for the national team, then that's that's what they should be doing. But their state admission is to develop better soccer throughout the United States. Well. They're keeping their word and doing it the way that they're doing it. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are keeping in line with their state admission. All right, Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I appreciate it. It, it was awesome having you on the show, and you gave us a different perspective that we really aren't hearing as much of the coaching I mean, aspect. Yeah, we had you know the director who oversees everything, and then you know you have a coach who has to actually deal deal with everything exactly. Yeah, so it, it's it's two perspective you don't often see. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. Anytime, Coach. All right, have Anytime. a good one. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, definitely an interesting dialogue today. Yeah, we had a lot to digest over those two interviews. Yeah, no, absolutely. Listeners, subscribe on iTunes. Real easy. We're on Google Play. Yeah, we're on Google Podcast. Play now. So your Android people, you can't complain. You have no excuse. You have to listen to us now. Yes, you have to. Uh, follow us on Twitter at UncSamSoccerPod. Yeah, we, re- we usually repost all the MLS news and all the U- latest national team news. So, I mean, give us a follow. We and then follow the your uh, two uh, follow favorite your boys hosts too. I mean, I post interesting stuff. I don't know about Steven. I mean, I'll give I'll give you the straight. You know how it is. Yeah, n- no BS. Just, just some Swiss bias. You know how Steven La- is. <laughs> don't get me started with my Swiss. Man, your Swiss chocolate's good though. Oh, it's very good. But uh, we got plenty of more on our next podcast. I can already tell you, it's going to be a little more. MLS it's been a crazy theme. week in MLS, man. So it's definitely gonna make for a fantastic we also got the all-star break so see you next week time not week next time next time bye Right now, you can get both Sprint's Unlimited plan and the iPhone XR with its amazing camera included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after monthly credit supplied within two bills. If canceled early, remaining balance due. Unlimited basic after 63020, pay $32 a month per line with auto pay. Data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply. Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit. Apply within two bills. If canceled early, remaining balance due. Unlimited basic after six thirty twenty. Pay $32 per month per line for five lines with auto-pay data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply.